The opinions and commentary expressed in the following presentation do not necessarily reflect the views of this station, the Economic Club of Indiana, or the Economic Club's agents or sponsors. Support for the Economic Club of Indiana is provided by the Lumina Foundation. With a goal to increase the percentage of Americans with high quality degrees and credentials to 60% by the year 2025, focused on ensuring an accessible, responsive, and accountable higher education system. Welcome to the Economic Club of Indiana. Today's presentation comes from China and U.S. relations expert Min Xing Pei. Recent developments of an escalating trade clash between China and the United States have rattled financial markets, consumers, and businesses, and have put the relationship between the world's two biggest economies in the forefront of the news lately, including the front page of the Wall Street Journal today. However, our guest today, Min Xin Pei, isn't sure that tariffs on steel and aluminum will affect China and other products, will affect China a great deal, as they have larger issues within their own country to deal with. For the past two decades, China has been experiencing a rapid economic growth. For citizens, this has resulted in a raised standard of living, more economic freedom, and greater physical mobility to move about the country. Now that Chinese citizens have reached a certain standard of living, they want better health care, more retirement security, and ultimately demand more political rights. The Chinese government, however, is investing in physical structure instead of in improvements to health care, education, and social security. For a country of 1.4 billion people, very few people at the top are making these decisions, and this will unlikely change anytime soon. With last month's vote to end presidential term limits, Chinese President Xi Jinping now has the right to remain in office indefinitely. This also includes those in power with him in the top tier of government. With the fluid tariff situation, changes to, the go to government terms, and an economic growth that seems to be stagnated, we are fortunate to have Min Xin with us today to help us understand this complex country and how it relates to the United States. Born in Shanghai, Min Xin Pei earned his bachelor's degree in English from the Shanghai International Studies University and a master's degree and PhD in political science from Harvard University. Currently, Min Xin is the director of the Keck Center for International and Strategic Studies and the Tom and Margot Pritzker, 72, Professor of Government at Claremont McKenna College. Min Xin is an eminent scholar and a frequent guest commentator on CNN and NPR. He has published various books and articles around economic reform, governance in China, and democratization in developing countries. His book, China's Crony Capitalism, The Dynamics of Regime Decay, explores how the Chinese economy has fallen victim to collusion between political and business elites. Please join me in welcoming Min Xin for what is sure to be a very educational conversation today. Thank you very much, Claire. Uh, it's a great honor for me to be here today. I want to thank the Economic Club of Indiana for giving me the honor to speak here today. In particular, I want to thank my good friend and former colleague, President uh, Greg Hess of uh, Wabash College for initiating uh, this process. Uh, I, my first knowledge of Indiana uh, was uh, uh, in the early 80s. Uh, I was still living in Shanghai, and the, uh, there was a film festival organized by the U.S. consulate in Shanghai, which they brought one of the movies. is called Breaking Away. <laughs> uh, I'm sure everybody knows. So that's my uh, uh, initial uh, exposure to Indiana's uh, uh, educational uh, system. Then uh, uh, I also have a, a family connection with Indiana. My oldest son, Alex, uh, went to Notre Dame uh, 2015, 2016, and got his master's degree in accounting from the Mendoza School. So I'm uh, personally vested in Indiana's fortune. So today, we, uh, I hope to uh, address uh, uh, really two issues. One is 
uh, what's going on inside the Chinese economy, uh, because uh, 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 given its size and influence, what happens in China actually is critically important, not just to uh, China itself, but to the rest of the world. And second, I will focus on U.S.-China relationship, in particular, its uh, their economic relationship. Uh, for those of you who may have not uh, been uh, tracking China's economic development, uh, uh, let me just give you some uh, uh, very uh, broad uh, uh, numbers uh, to describe uh, the uh, the growth of the Chinese economy and its uh, importance. Uh, the rise of China as an economic power is unprecedented in global history. Essentially, China came from practically nowhere 40 years ago, in, in four decades, to become the, global, the world's second largest uh, economy. Uh, measured in uh, purchasing power parity, which is really the standard of living, uh, China's economy is already bigger than the U.S. China is about 23 trillion, the U.S. is about 19. Trillion, so it's uh, almost 15% bigger. Uh, measured in U.S. dollar terms, China uh, is about 12 trillion. The U.S. is about 19 trillion. So China is, to, uh, is about uh, two-thirds, uh, 63%. Uh, but just look at the, uh, these numbers. Uh, 1990, China was 6% of the U.S. economy. Uh, 2000, China was about 12%. 2010, China was 40%, and today is 63%. So the, within uh, roughly 30 years, China's economy in terms of uh, its relative size to the U.S. Uh, grew six times. And a lot of problems between the U.S. and China, in particular their trade relationship, come from this rapid change in relative uh, power. Of course, China as an economy uh, is still a lot less wealthy. Uh, per capita income in China is about one quarter of the U.S. So for the first time, the U.S. is dealing with an economy that is uh, much less wealthy, but is almost as large. Uh, and that creates trade frictions because China exports a different set of goods than the U.S. buys, and we'll go more uh, into this. Uh, and the Chinese economy used to be very close to the economy. It did not do a lot of trade with the rest of the world. To uh, 1978, China was the world's number 21 exporter in terms of goods. Today, it's number one. Uh, China exports something like $2.1 trillion dollars in goods uh, to the rest of the world. Uh, I don't have the number of China's export uh, in 1978, but it, I would be surprised uh, that it, were, it would be more than $10 billion uh, a year. The Chinese economy is also very open, to much more open than the U.S. economy. Uh, China's foreign trade, it, total trade, exports and imports, is about $4.3 trillion. Uh, that's about 35% of its GDP. Compared with the U.S., the U.S. Uh, is a much, as a big economy, is actually much less reliable on foreign trade. The U.S. Uh, total foreign trade is $5.2 trillion. That's about 25% of its GDP. So you would say that the U.S. is much less dependent on foreign trade uh, than China. And when you look at export-import mix, one thing a lot of Americans do not know about the economy is that where the U.S. is strong is in service sector. The U.S. of the $2.3 trillion in U.S. exports, roughly a third is services. We're talking about tourism, education. The U.S. education uh, sector uh, has uh, trade surplus of $43 billion. Uh, that's because the U.S. has the world's best uh, education uh, system. Uh, so uh, because of China's rapid growth, uh, the, uh, 
it creates uh, and because of uh, China's unique advantage in producing goods, which is really labor-intensive goods, and that over the last two uh, decades really hollowed out the industrial base not of not just of the U.S. It's in the entire world. China today is the global, at the center of the global supply chain. When you look at uh, China's total exports, about China $2.1 trillion, about a third are so-called processing exports. That's $700, trillion, $700 billion. That is, China imports parts, more advanced parts, semiconductors and other components from Japan, US, Europe, and, put, and assembles them into things like iPhones and other electronics and re-exports them. So in other words, uh, China is performing the low end of the value chain. But still, when you look at the numbers, it's huge. So that's why the China shock is not just felt by the US. It's felt by <laughs> Europe as well. Uh, and uh, uh, the other uh, uh, problem is that China now, uh, because of the supply chain, China has also become the largest trading partner of most of the countries uh, in the world. When you look at just very distant countries, uh, China is either number one or number two. And that, over, the long time, uh, over a long period of time, would give China increasing geopolitical Influence the same way the U.S. gained its geopolitical influence after World War II. You gain geopolitical influence not just by having a large military. Uh, you gain geopolitical influence by being the largest customer or trading partner with uh, everybody around the world. So this is the background between uh, the background of U.S.-China relationship. Now let me talk more about China's economic future because. One of, the prob uh, one of the mistakes people often make in thinking about China is that they tend to look at China from the rearview mirror, is that while well, China had this four decades of, of uh, very high levels of growth, uh, and they think that going ahead, it will be almost the same. No, actually, going ahead, China's internal problems are just as serious, uh, actually much more serious than the U.S. Uh, domestic economic problems. The U.S. does not have an economic problem. The U.S. economy is still the most dynamic, resilient, competitive. What I think, again, I'm American, I've, I've lived in this country for 34 years, and from, as a, uh, as a scholar and also somebody uh, from a different cultural background, I look at it, the U.S. problem is really political and, uh, and social. Is that uh, the U.S. economy, if you look, take the U.S. economy and ask somebody, would you like to take over this economy, you will have a lot of takers. But uh, <laughs> uh, do you want to take over the U.S. political systems? Then I think it's a very different <laughs> story, right? <laughs> so, uh, but when you look at the Chinese economic system, then it's actually, it has a lot more deeply embedded problems. Let me just outline a few so that you get, you balance both the rise of China, the economic challenge brought by China, especially brought about by China to the old economy. And then you would say, well, uh, uh, we should uh, treat China's challenge seriously, but we also should have some perspective. Uh, first, the near term, uh, I talk about both the near, medium term, uh, and uh, the long term. The near term problem for China is really one word, debt. China's economy over the last 10 years has been largely sustained by a rapid rise, of, rise in borrowing internally. So uh, the Chinese debt to GDP has, has doubled in 10 years. And that has created enormous worries, uh, both for China and for the rest of the world. Uh, so the immediate problem in the next sort of three to five years is how do they work out their debt problem. Because if you do not work out their debt problem, uh, over the long run, the, uh, the banks will have a lot of bad loans on their debt, and companies uh, settled with loans will not be able to uh, expand. Uh, and uh, so it's, uh, uh, it's roughly about three uh, times of GDP. The most worrisome part is that half of that debt, we're talking about 
15 trillion dollars or more, 16 trillion, uh, are owned by Chinese corporations, and half of that debt is owned by state-owned companies. So based by by uh, based on IMF estimate, China's total bad debt. We're talking about zombie companies. These are the companies that are in a market economy should have been liquidated. Zombie companies owe about 15% of China's outstanding corporate debt. And I did a, a very quick calculation. It's about $3 trillion, which means that China has $3 trillion of bad loans hidden on its uh, bank's balance sheet. If they do not recapitalize the banks, if they don't do, uh, address with these bad loans, then the economy will lose dynamism and growth will actually be a lot slower. It will be uh, very much like the Japan system after its bubble uh, uh, burst in the early 1990s. The long-term prob uh, long problems, we're talking about seven to 15-year problems. Uh, then I'll just give you a, 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 a list that, which will be familiar to those who have been following China. The first challenge is really to restructure the economy. So, Last 40 years, China's growth has been largely driven by industrialization. That's a moving China's population, surplus, rural surplus population from the countryside to the cities. And they've done this. And in this process, they created an industrial base. And in this process, the economy was driven largely by investment in infrastructure, in factories. That growth model delivered a miracle. But that growth model is decreasingly effective in sustaining China's growth. Because as you may all know, the more investment you put into the economy, the return on the investment uh, decreases over time. Uh, so you, re you require a lot more investment to sustain the same level of economic growth. So if China continues to rely on investment to sustain the economy, it will not be able to do so. Uh, and another thing that a lot of people outside China do not know is that China is at a stage where the U.S. Uh, was in roughly about 1960s, 70s, that the economy began to deindustrialize. That is, technological progress and the rising cost of labor in China. Uh, the combination is pushing low-end labor-intensive manufacturing out of China. And when you look at the composition of the Chinese economy, it used to be the case that manufacturing or industry delivered more than 50% of growth. But uh, these days, that share has been falling. It's now uh, probably below 45%. So over time, the economy will be service-oriented, just like the U.S. The U.S. economy today is about 80% service, 20% uh, manufacturing. Uh, so over time, China will do that as well. So if you do not uh, restructure the economy by uh, encouraging consumption at home, then the Chinese economy will lose its, uh, 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 its momentum. Just give you one uh, uh, comparison. The US in the U.S. economy, uh, the uh, consumption, final consumption, government, uh, private uh, household, if you put together, is about 80%. China is 60%, so there's a huge gap. So China needs to boost the economy. Otherwise, uh, uh, it will not have enough demand. The second problem for China is really technological upgrading. That is, once you lose your competitiveness in cheap labor, then you have to improve your technology. This is actually where U.S. and China are finding each other more and more in conflict with each other. Because when the US economy is a high-tech economy, China's economy is really low-tech, labor-intensive economy, there's really no conflict because they are very complementary. But when China moves up to the technological scale, and then the real challenge to the US is more real. China has this ambitious plan. You may have uh, uh, seen the reference to this. It's called Made in China 2025, essentially, if you believe in China's aspirations, its government is, wants to do what the U.S. is currently doing at the high end of man, the manufacturing sector. And for the U.S., this is very disturbing. That is, uh, not only in the long term, 
that uh, the U.S. will face a much more sophisticated, technologically uh, developed competitor. But in this process, how will China get it? So will China uh, uh, respect American intellectual property rights? That's one thing, because how China acquires uh, technology is a subject of controversy, if you put it mildly. Uh, uh, but when you look at where China is doing, that is, as China becomes more wealthy uh, relative to the U.S., uh, China is investing a huge amount of money in R&D, research and development. Let, let me just give you two figures that will, uh, 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 that will allow you to compare. Uh, the U.S. Uh, invests about $510 billion in R&D a year, so roughly 3% of GDP, which is standard for developed countries. China, which has a per capita income of a quarter of the U.S., is now investing almost $300 billion. Six years ago, China was investing half, $160 billion, almost half. So China is catching up very fast by investing a lot in R&D. Uh, and if you throw a lot of money uh, at a problem, something will happen. So for the U.S., I think the real, uh, the, uh, there are two responses required. One, obviously, is to hold China to its commitments to intellectual property rights and then try to prevent uh, China's violations or penalize China for its violations. The other is actually to strengthen American history historical comparative advantage, which is really uh, our high-tech sector, we need to invest a lot more. So uh, right now, when I look at China's R&D scene, is that you find the Chinese private companies are catching up very fast. Those who are in the manufacturing sector uh, in this room should know is that 20 years ago, they were not worried about Chinese private companies. Today, the gap is much narrower. And that means that... Uh, uh, if they fear about Chinese competition 10, 12 years, uh, 15 years from now, it's really the Chinese privacy. The state-owned companies actually I do not worry that much about. And that's my third uh, risk factor for China, is that the Chinese economy is really a dual economy. Think, uh, there's one part of China, there's roughly about 60, 65% of GDP, which is very, very dynamic, competitive. That's the private sector. And there's another 35, 40% of the economy that's state-owned. It is extremely inefficient. Uh, banking, uh, financial services, a lot of steel mills, a lot of automobile factories, uh, heavy industry. Uh, and they are very pr uh, well protected. And basically, in, uh, what's happening in China is that this sector is sucking up a lot of resources. This sector uses something like 70% of China's capital but contributes to only 35 40% of GDP. So this part of the economy is dragging down the Chinese economy. So just imagine had China being a true, truly market-based economy, how dynamic that, that economy uh, would be. Uh, but the problem for China is not just this sector is dragging down Chinese economy, this sector is hurting the rest of the world. Because in order to keep this sector which is politically very powerful, alive, the Chinese, uh, this, these sectors, these companies are producing goods below cost, and they are flooding the global market, and the steel aluminum industry is, uh, in China is dominated by steel, uh, by state-owned companies. So as they uh, get government subsidies, subsidies and continue to operate, even at a loss, at a real financial loss, they can uh, cause... Uh, depression in uh, global uh, prices. And uh, so this is a structural economic reform story. And finally, I would say that China's domestic long-term problem is really one word, dem uh, demographics. The Chinese population is aging very fast. It's roughly about 15, 20 years behind Japan. And Japan is the world's, uh, well, if you look at uh, age is the world's oldest society. Uh, per, uh, median age today in Japan is 46, uh, uh, almost 47, uh, 47 years. Uh, 
China will reach that point roughly in about 15 to 20 year time. So if you look ahead, when you have an aging society where your per capita income is still relatively low, then the economy just loses steam. Uh, there's one, I, I think those of in this room will remember the day, uh, the, the, the movie Rising Sun, right? This is uh, uh, the late 80s when Japan was seen as unbeatable. Uh, today, nobody talks about Japan. Japan's uh, economy is about half of China's size. Uh, what happened? Well, of course, everybody blamed uh, the bubble, but those who study economics knows that it's the demography. It's the aging society. Uh, that's so looking ahead, uh, you would say China uh, uh, is a very serious economic challenge to the rest of the world, to the U.S., but it has its uh, internal problems. So let me just go now uh, touch on U.S.-China relations. It's not just about trade. It will be a lot simpler if U.S.-China relationship is about trade. It's actually about the overall relationship. I've already set the stage. You know the background is that you have two great powers that have very different political systems, that have very different economic systems. One is a really free market. It is a state-dominated. And when they get together, the relationship is always going to be very, very tense. But in the last 40 years, the U.S. had this strategy of so-called engagement with China, built on a set of assumptions that China would be part of the Western dominating system, its economy will be open, it will open up, its society will open up, and it will not challenge American security interests in Asia or throughout the world. Over the last five years, all of these assumptions have turned out to be un invalid or invalidated by Chinese action. So that is the background. So today in Washington, there is a widely shared consensus that this policy has not worked. There needs to be a more robust policy, much more confrontational policy toward China. That's why in this unfolding trade war, you may notice very few people actually stand up and say something nice about China, because they can't. They cannot find any evidence to back an argument in support of the continuation of a policy which is now widely recognized as failed. So there is this sentiment in the U.S. among elites that it's time to take on China. I think this is the right sentiment, is that uh, on trade front alone, China needs to be uh, confronted, uh, and it's the right time to do so. Uh, but uh, the problem is, how do you deal with this uh, issue? It's really complex because, as I said, U.S.-China, uh, when you take on China, on the, on the trade front, you actually have to know what you want. Uh, if you say, oh, I want China to reduce its bilateral trade deficit with the U.S., it's actually not achievable because U.S. trade with China is U.S. trade with the rest of the world because one third of that trade actually comes from other countries. About 45% of China's exports are produced by foreign companies working in China. So you, you actually have to say, well, we want to cut our imports. Then you have to uh, uh, buy $100 billion. This is a number demonstration has been talking about. So first you need to understand what you want. Then you start with a strategy. I think what's uh, happening is that there is no such strategy. And a lot of uh, uh, you're not really know, uh, you, do re you don't know what you want to negotiate with China in order to achieve. Even though you are, I don't say the U.S. is in a much stronger position uh, than China. So going forward, you, likely there are two scenarios. What I call is the first ideal scenario is lose, win, win. That is China lose, then the U.S. win, and then China wins in the long term. Is that in order to get there, then the current administration uh, will have to adjust its strategy. But China is eager to talk. China, does, China knows that it will lose much more than the U.S. The U.S. will lose, as well as I will explain in the next, uh, uh, when I talk about the next scenario. So the, US, the best case is that uh, the U.S. will force China to make some immediate, tangible, and sizable concessions on imports from the U.S. 
because China can still increase its imports. The U.S. capacity to reduce imports from China actually is very limited. But Chinese capacity to divert its imports from other countries and then buy from the U.S. can be increased by actually sizable amount. We're talking about $10, $20 billion just, just throughout a number quite easily. Uh, so this will give the Trump administration something to tweet about, as we know, and then to declare victory. But this is short term. This is not going to solve the structural problem between the U.S. and China. Then the U.S. and China will have to negotiate longer term agreements, enforceable ones, on two issues. One is really market access in China, because China's market, Western markets are very open to China. Internal, inside China, the markets are closed or quite close to American companies, especially the service sector. As I said, the most competitive sectors in the U.S. are the service sectors. Uh, uh, so if China opens up its financial sector, in particular because it's very dynamic, uh, and its retail sector, uh, and we're talking about e-commerce as well, uh, then the U.S. will actually uh, force China to open its mind. So market says, and the third is technology transfer. Is that the U.S. will have to lay down some very strict ground rules uh, that China will have to uh, have to observe. If you want to develop indigenous technology, that's fine, but do not force American companies to share technology. Or China's uh, standard approach is to leverage its market size because the market is so big, uh, second to the U.S. As if you want to come into the market, you have to form a joint venture. You have to uh, transfer technology. I think China will have to scrap that rule in order to label the playing field. So if the Trump administration has this strategy, then we can avoid a really, uh, a really costly trade war. So, but at the moment, I think what's likely to happen is the second strategy. Second, that is really a bad outcome. That is, uh, uh, if you read today's Wall Street Journal, is that... Uh, apparently, Trump and his advisors believe that they've got to win, uh, score a clear win in their confrontation with China. So now if you follow, uh, the, uh, we're in the second round. At this stage, it's all talk, okay? They announce what we want to do, uh, each of them want, wants to do. The first round is steel, aluminum, $3 billion uh, of Chinese imports will be affected, and China came back with $3 billion uh, tariffs, uh, tariffs on $3 billion worth of American goods, mainly California wine, nuts from Georgia, uh, relatively sort of, uh, inconsequential. Then the U.S. Came, uh, returned fire with tariffs on $50 billion, mostly uh, machinery, would not affect American goods. And China... Uh, uh, return fire with tariffs from 50 billion to actually concentrate on auto, on agriculture, on uh, Boeing aircraft. And now the U.S., according to today's Wall Street Journal, if this is going to happen next week, you're going to see a tariffs of $100 billion. And that will actually affect a lot. So where would China... Uh, uh, first of all, we don't know how, if this happens, how really it will affect the real economy. Because today nobody knows. The the, uh, a lot of Chinese imports are connected with a lot of other economies. So the, uh, the global economy will take this big shock. Uh, that's the sort of worst worst. That is, but if we go into the third round and China fights back against uh, tariffs on $100 billion, then the Ch China does not have a lot of ammunition. The U.S. exports in terms of goods only $130 billion to China. China uh, exports $500 billion to the U.S. Uh, so China is quickly running out of things to, uh, to tax. Uh, <laughs> but there's one way that China can hit, hit back at sort of three areas where the U.S. Uh, economy actually is doing pretty well. One is U.S. companies in China. The U.S. companies in China provide uh, their market share in China, total volume of business is about $55 billion. And they're sitting ducks. Uh, in China. So those companies that operate in China will be hit first because China uh, can do all sorts of things. Second market is service sector because the U.S. runs a large trade deficit in goods 
with China. But the U.S. runs a large service uh, surplus with China. China sends here about three, uh, about three million tourists. Uh, I hope more of them will come to Indianapolis. Uh, and they spend about $30 billion. And this is something that China can actually shut down very quickly. So that, uh, that can affect uh, a lot. Uh, uh, second is, uh, I don't think that this, uh, they will do it right away, but they will start thinking. They will tighten the schools. That's service in higher education. China sends out 300,000 students. And I figure it's about $15 billion to, 30, uh, to $20 billion in ex imports of American higher education into China. And that, if that uh, sort of a, uh, trade is curtailed, then a lot of American colleges will be impacted because the U.S. college population is not growing. The, a lot of colleges can survive largely because of foreign students, and China accounts for at least 30-35% of that. So uh, I hope ending, uh, we will end this on a more positive note. And if you, and today, that is, uh, uh, it all depends on really, uh, I think, as, as we're familiar, is that everything, every day things change in Washington. Uh, yesterday, there was a relatively good piece of news on the trade front, because Trump is talking about returning to TPP, uh, when you deal with such a gigantic country such as China, which is a part of the global economy, uh, which actually has some muscle to fight back, you, the best strategy is not to go it alone. The U.S. can do it alone, but the cost to the U.S. will be enormous, and then a lot of other countries will benefit, especially Europe. So you better line up your friends and say we are all on the, at the same time. So talking about a multilateral approach uh, and uh, talking about uh, going back to TPP actually would be a very good, at least a very good negotiating strategy. But I think it should also be a long-term strategy. Thank you very much. Well, that was really terrific. Um, we have about 10 minutes for Q&A, and although you touched on a lot of this during your remarks, you talked about a lot, and there was a lot going on daily, and it's kind of hard to keep track of it unless you're an expert such as yourself. So I just want to go back to some of the points that you made about why is it that we are now in this more escalated conflict with China. We've, uh, you've noted that we've been running a large trade deficit with China for years. And um, when, when there was this mismatch in our economies and we had a low-tech, um, really wage-based economy in China versus our high-tech, uh, service-oriented economy, there was really little disconnect. But now that China is kind of climbing up that curve, we're starting to see more of that conflict. So yeah. is that the only reason? Are there other reasons why this is now suddenly the, the place where we find ourselves with China? Yeah. Uh, I think largely because uh, of what China's government uh, did in the last five years. Because the last five years, we, China had a new leader uh, who had a very different vision, who took very big risks uh, in terms of security. He decided to build artificial islands in the South China Sea and then cross a red line. And he uh, initially promised to open up the economy, but not much happened. Mm -hmm. And then internally, uh, political repression uh, has reached the worst level since the end of uh, the Maoist era. So all of these policies have disillusioned those friends of China uh, in the US. Uh, and then uh, I think in particular, the corporate sector has been greatly disillusioned mm. because uh, they, have, they have played a very important role in getting China into WTO. They saw that China would reciprocate by opening its market. But that has not happened. So it's really a combination. It's a, uh, uh, the, uh, the boiling pot, uh, point of the frustration with China. That's why uh, when Trump decided to do this, there's not a lot of opposition. Mm -hmm. I think the only difference, disagreement, is how do you do it? You do it right. You just do not uh, go out, do a lot of damage, and not accomplish. Because the ideal outcome for the U.S. business sector is that you use the threat of trade sanctions 
to open up China's market. Well, and that leads to um, helping us better understand the new president, Xi Jinping. Um, you mentioned that he's made promises to open up the market, hasn't followed through, has pursued some of the strategies, and then um, it's less friendly to human rights within yes. China. Um, he just made a major speech earlier this week yes. where it was billed by his top advisors yes. as yes. Um, kind of moving forward around yes. opening the market yes. and respecting intellectual property rights. Yes. Yes. How did you interpret that? Yeah. Did it sound like he was actually moving in a different direction? No, you, uh, you, you can read it both ways. Is that in tone, it's conciliatory, but in substance, not much. Mm-hmm. So you have to hold uh, China to its, uh, to its promises. In this case, I think the smartest way is to make them be, uh, make them be very specific on what do you mean by this. Because the U.S. Uh, uh, has been there before, uh, the U.S. corporate community. They've, they've heard similar rhetoric before, but they could not pin China down. And this is, again, a very good opportunity to pin them down on a very specific timeline if you want to open the auto sector. Give us a timeline. Mm. What well, uh, will happen if you fail to deliver? So if you open the fi- financial sector, it's not about immediate future. We want an exact timeline. Mm. Well, I mentioned to you during lunch that I studied Russian, and it's hard not to think about the speech about openness and think about Gorbachev and Perestroika yes. and Glasnost in the, the 80s that led eventually to the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Yes. So it sounds like you don't think Xi Jinping is like Gorbachev and what he's no. talking about at he's all. He's Gorbachev in reverse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's interesting because when he first came to power, he gave an internal talk to a group of officials. And he talked about the fall of the Soviet Union. And he blamed the fall of the Soviet Union on Gorbachev. Mm-hmm. He blamed the former Soviet uh, Communist Party for not being tough enough mm-hmm. uh, towards its own people. So his policy in the last five years shows the opposite. But we don't know whether... The current Chinese leadership is making a historic bet against history. China at this level of economic development, for all other dictatorships in history, would would have been a democracy. Hmm. But China is not. (laughs) So he's making a heroic bet. We don't know whether he's going to succeed. Yeah. Well, he's got the rest of his but, life to... But he's certainly go, yeah. going against history. Yeah. Interesting. Well, speaking of Russia, can you help us understand what dynamic Vladimir Putin and Russia is playing in these dynamics between the U.S. and China? Okay. Uh, Putin uh, sees China as a tactical ally. Uh, he's weak over long... Uh, because right now, uh, Russia and China are in a sort of strategic partnership. What has brought them together is really their fear, resentment toward the U.S. The, the moment they can strike a deal with the U.S., the moment they will sell the other down the river. So this is, <laughs> I think they all know, uh, they all know this. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about human rights. That's something that I've not seen as much in the media here, um, perhaps because I've just not been following it. But it's, it's hard not to think that it's been almost 30 years since Tiananmen Square. Yes. So what, what is going on um, within China right now, and, and why should we be concerned about that? I think what's going on in China is a very systematic crackdown on civil liberties, uh, civil society, uh, on the rule of law. Uh, the new leaders want to build a country ruled by law, not rule of law. Very different. Rule by law means that you uh, craft, draft, pass all sorts of regulations to limit freedom. Rule of law, which we have, is to limit the government's ability to harm us. Mm. So very different. So this uh, is uh, uh, the new leader's vision for China. But when you look at what has happened in the five years, is academic freedom has shrunk. Uh, lawyers uh, who uh, uh, work on behalf of disadvantaged people, a lot of them have, have been arrested, sentenced uh, to jail terms. And the internet has been uh, subject to a lot more stringent control. So the trend has been very, very depressing. Hmm. With a population of 1.4 billion people whose economy has been steadily improving, and you have people now wanting to be firmly in the middle class and continue to to climb economically and socially, what's going to happen with them and their voice? Are they going to be able to play a more active role to help 
push Xi, uh, Xi, Jinping, Xi Jinping yes. in a different direction, or are they just going to be squashed and not have that ability yeah. to do that? Uh, I think uh, a lot of them uh, have decided that under the current system, they want to leave. So uh, the emigration of wealthy Chinese has been going up a lot. A lot of them also want to move their money out of China because they don't feel safe mm. in this kind of environment. Uh, but over the long run, it really depends on two things. You know, a, how well will this system function and deliver? Uh, let's just give the Communist Party some credit. For last 40 years, it has delivered. I mean, it has lifted an impoverished country to upper middle class income level. So uh, if the economy does not do well, then the middle class will lose hope. So that's one. The other big piece, actually, is outside China. How do Western democracies perform? If, uh, well, well, let's just go back to the late 1980s. Why did Gorbachev take place? Why did the Soviet Union collapse? That's because the old system was doing so poorly. Mm. And in the 1980s, Western democracies were doing so well. So uh, another piece of the puzzle is that Western democracies, especially the US, will have to recover from their current difficulties. And if you have these two pieces together, that is, this one-party system starts to deteriorate in terms of performance, and then Western democracies recover, then the chances for a political change in China will be greatly improved. Hmm. You mentioned that um, it's the common belief is that the strategy of engagement that the U.S. has deployed for the last 40 years has not resulted in the desired outcomes. But right now, we're trying different things. We're being more aggressive as a country, but we don't necessarily have a strategy or an end in mind. Um, And you talked about your different scenarios of the lose, win-win, et cetera. What what do you think our strategy should be? Uh, Well, first of all, I think our strategy is that we don't go along. We will work with our partners. China may be very strong, but China does not have real allies. North Korea, <laughs> uh, this is the ally probably you don't want to have. <laughs> Pakistan, another, yeah. well, be my guest, right? <laughs> so, but the U.S. has a lot of allies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first thing is that you actually want to build up an allies. Mm-hmm. And second is that you uh, uh, think through what your long-term goal is. I think we don't have a clear goal. I think in the past, whatever you talk about, uh, the engagement strategy, uh, how misguided it was, it actually had coherence, had long go, and it worked uh, within the existing international system. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but today, I, uh, given the turnover at the top, given the inexperience of Donald Trump, uh, I do not believe that he has a strategy problem. He's very tactical, uh, uh, but you really need a strategy that your tactics will serve. Mm-hmm. So we don't know whether we are actually going to try to re-enter TPP. There's just talk yesterday yeah. that we're exploring, taking yeah, another yes. look at it. And today there was the announcement in the Wall Street Journal that next week we're going to ramp up yes. our, our pressure on yeah. China. So what do you think the result is going to be? Where are we headed in the next three to six months, do you think? Frankly, I don't know. <laughs> that is, nobody knows. Well, yeah. uh, firstly, the, the uh, well, at a very technical level, uh, is the president still talking to Steve Bannon, mm-hmm. right? Because if he's talking to Steve Bannon, Steve said, don't go to PVP, you wrap, wrap up. And then uh, who will see the president the, right before he makes the decision? Because as we know, uh, he tends to listen to the person who last talks to him. So all of these things, and then we don't know how distracted he will be uh, by other things. Uh. I won't comment yeah. on that. Uh, you, you talked about the, the number of and the significant number of yeah. U.S. businesses based in China. Yes. Um, and you said they're sitting ducks. Sitting ducks. So is, is there any role that they can do, not only to shore up their interests, of course, but actually to help with improving relations with the U.S. or even helping yeah. to continue to push for openness and political rights for the, the people living in China? Yeah. I think uh, as businesses, it's very hard to be political. Mm-hmm. in the U.S., oh, especially so in China. Mm-hmm. But I think by bringing best practices in uh, the workplace safety, workplace treatment, then they're already doing a great deal. 
uh, in China. I think in this particular round of trade tensions, uh, they uh, what they actually need to do is the more work needs to be done in Washington. Mm. They need to have a common voice. They have to tell demonstration that this is what we want, uh, and this is what we would like, like you to do. Uh, I think in this case, the Chinese probably are more prepared. Uh, they've spent a lot of time going through. They have a better strategy, even though the strategy will work for them, not necessarily for us. I think what the U.S. has at this moment is that this very strong sense uh, about China that something has to be done. But what is lacking, as I said, is a good strategy, and that's this, that's where the U.S. businesses can come in because they know a lot about China, which the current administration uh, does not seem to have. So, if we're going to be effectively positioned to um, maintain a strong position vis-a-vis -vis China, especially with its Made in China 2025 yeah. plan. What are the things we need to be doing in Washington? How do we need to be bringing the right people together to think about an effective strategy okay. for this, this yeah. China under a new leader? Yeah, uh, I think there's two fronts. In fact, the most important things, the most effective things we can do are things we do at home. That is, you uh, increase R&D, you improve infrastructure, you invest education, because the U.S. has this wide range of advantages uh, that China cannot match. Uh, uh, so we get our own housing order. This first. And then you uh, systematically and very, what shall I say, uh, firmly uh, hold China to a set of rules mm -hmm. you think that China should uh, abide by. Uh, and then China will have to pay a penalty if it violates those rules. And of course, you do this along uh, uh, side of your European allies because Europe is just as threatened by China's uh, attempt to be this industrial high-tech superpower. Well, please join me in thanking Min Shin Pei. Thank you. I'm just going to make some closing remarks here. Thank you so much to Minshin for taking the time to speak with us today, and big props to the program committee for planning this talk over a year ago and somehow crystal ball gazing to know this would be so relevant and timely. Yeah. Today's presentation will be broadcast on WFYI Public Radio 90.1 on Saturday, May 12th, and also available for download at WFYI.org. Please join us next month, Thursday, May 3rd, for our final speaker of the season, Dave Ricks, Chairman, President, and CEO of Eli Lilly and Company. Don't miss the opportunity to hear from the leader of one of the world's top pharmaceutical companies whose roots are right here in Indianapolis. Taking the reins in 2017, Ricks will share insights on Lilly's next chapter with a focus on new product development, promising research, increased productivity, and attracting top scientific talent from around the world. Information and tickets is available at the economicclubofindiana.com. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to China and U.S. relations expert Min Xing Pei, part of the 2017-2018 Economic Club Speaker Series. Join us next month at this time for the final speaker of the season, Dave Ricks, President and CEO of Eli Lilly and Company. You can find more information at economicclubofindiana.com. The Economic Club of Indiana is a production of WFYI Public Media in Indianapolis for Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations. Music